0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 125, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Less than 1% of the people farming in Minnesota are Latino, and Eduardo Rivera is one of them. His operation, Sin Fronteras Farm and Food, specializes in producing fresh, healthy food for restaurants, grocery stores, and a 40-member CSA marketed to the Latino community in Minnesota's Twin Cities. Eduardo started farming with his infant daughter on his back on a quarter acre of rented ground near Stillwater. The farm has grown to three acres of production still on rented ground. We discuss Eduardo's rigorous business planning process and the progress he has made towards his goals as he has financed his farm's growth and development. Eduardo shares the challenges of piecing together infrastructure like greenhouses and cold storage in multiple locations while he works to finance a land purchase. And we dig into the challenges and opportunities that Eduardo has found in marketing his produce, especially with regards to making it available through Latino markets in the Twin Cities. Eduardo also provides lots of great details about his cilantro and pepper production his irrigation system, paying employees, and more. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com, and by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, and lightweight for less compaction, easy to maintain, and repair on the farm. Gear driven and built to last for decades of dependable service, bcsamerica.com. And by you, our listeners, your love and support matter tremendously. And I appreciate so much all of the reviews on iTunes, the comments on Facebook, and so much more. I've also set up an option to directly support the show with a monthly donation at farmer to farmer slash donate. Eduardo Rivera, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer Podcast.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Chris. Uh, I feel really uh honor to be on your podcast thank you
0: i'm so pleased that you could join us today that i know that the sun has finally come out here in the upper midwest after a really wet spring so thank you so much for making the time
1: yeah no problem uh this is this is exciting so i i had to make a little bit of time for this
0: so eduardo I'd, i'd like to start off by having you give us a little bit of background with sin fronteras farm and food where are you guys located how many acres are you farming and how are you selling your produce
1: So Sin Fronteras Farm and Food started in uh, 2014. Um, And I started on about a half an acre that year. And this is my uh, fourth year in production. And I am currently farming uh, three and a half acres. I, at least three and a half acres, but I farmed three acres and I uh, market to the twin cities, for the twin cities, St. Paul, mostly Minneapolis through, uh, various restaurants and natural food stores like co-ops. And then I also, um, I am doing a marketing of a CSA kind of directed to the Latino community in the twin cities. Um, since a lot of the stuff that i grow is uh, is in my diet me being from mexico uh, i grow a lot of a lot of the things in the diet so i try to have that option for people of uh, of color in the twin cities
0: and you're located just west of stillwater right which is east of the twin cities
1: west of stillwater minnesota and about 15 minutes from the border of wisconsin and the Twin Cities are about 25 minutes away from the, the land that I lease.
0: So you, you brought up the the subject of the CSA, and I know that's something that your farm's actually gotten a lot of attention about, is this this effort to to reach into a community that I think is, it would be fair to say, is traditionally underserved in the CSA marketplace. How has that gone for you?
1: Um, it's gone pretty well. I mean, um, I wouldn't say that it's... You know, it's something that I'm still trying to work on. I'm not saying that I have 100% of my customers are Latino. uh, But, you know, it's something that I'm still working towards to have and be mostly Latino families, but it's going really well. I mean, I started with six people my first year, which then I I did a a combination of CSA, the six people, farmer's market which is a lot of work and then wholesale and so uh, that that was my second year in production I did that and then now going into my fourth year of production I have uh, close to 40 members and uh, no longer doing farmer's market because it's just uh, it takes a lot of labor not to take a certain amount of produce to not sell that much produce and just sit there and it takes a lot of time.
0: And then the Toronto and natural food stores market in the Twin Cities, I know is a, is a booming marketplace. And that's where, that's where I used to do most of my selling of produce when I was farming. And are you focusing on ethnic foods for that marketplace?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, when I started farming, I, I quickly realized that I didn't want to farm any buck choy, any Asian greens or any, you know, uh just things that I wasn't eating. I, I quickly realized that I wanted to grow things that I was common that were common to me that I could that I could cook all the time or that I knew how to use them and that way I would be able to market that stuff. And so that kinda worked out really well. That I you know, my my number one seller at my farm is, is jalapeño. Peppers are something that I market uh is probably I would say a good chunk. I'm not. I'm not gonna guess on how much of the percentage, but I. I would guess a good chunk. Peppers are a good chunk of uh, my. You know, my total grow growth at the end of the year. So I grow lots of hot peppers, lots of tomatillos, lots of cilantro. So I. I yeah, I think I, I tend to market those kinds of things that I remember eating and that I remember my grandfather farming.
0: Did you grow up on a farm?
1: Well. I grew up in a small village. Um I mean we called it a rancho which is you know that's the term for like a really small population of people that live in a little secluded areas but my grandfather was a farmer. He uh he he grew black beans and pinto beans, lots of dry beans and also lots of maize, lots of corn for masa. And so and we all lived in a courtyard where he had about an acre and a half of stuff that he would grow for the house. And that's where I remember, you know, he had an orchard there where he had, you know, peaches, uh, plums, apricots, keens. I remember having figs. I remember having lemons, limes, grapes. So he had, he, he, I don't know how he did it now that I think about it. Cause he had no tractor. And I mean, he had some of that family help him, but he did a lot of space and dry bean and corn and then still did, you know, enough for, for the family to eat.
0: And how did you get from there to being in Minneapolis?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a, so my father migrated to Arizona in the eighties and my mother stayed behind us with myself and three other siblings and in 92 my mother decided to migrate and to join my dad up in Arizona so we migrated there I spent the majority of my life in Arizona when I uh graduated high school I uh I moved out to Washington state for a couple years and then I came back and my wife uh was currently going to school there in Flagstaff, Arizona. So that's where I met her. And But she's originally uh, native, uh, an indigenous person, native to Minnesota. She's Anishinaabe. Uh, and so she, you know, meeting her over there, we got married over there. My daughter was born over there in Arizona, but she wanted to be closer to her family. So we ended up moving to Minneapolis and we've been here for, what is it? Seven, yeah, this will be our seventh year.
0: And how did you get started farming in the Minneapolis area? Well,
1: it was really her that got me really interested in farming. It was part of, like I said, you know, I kind of grew up having that be a normal thing in where I grew up. And and I remember foraging for wild potatoes, you know, foraging for cactus to eat. There's so much foraging happening when I was a kid. Uh, I lost track of that when my mother moved us up up to the States. And so when I met my wife, she was really into the idea of eating local and organic and healthy. And so part of her friends started a little, uh, and there was a bunch of indigenous people that were doing this in Flexstaff Uh, they were growing, uh, corn and squash in the soil that you could literally grow anything. And so I got really fascinated and seeing how well these, the combination of the, the three sisters did in that soil and how, some of the techniques that, you know, like the Hopis use where they dig uh, holes and have water down there and it, like l- let it out really slow. So there's a lot of techniques and I got really fascinated by that. And so when we moved up here, we found a community garden gardening spot. I did a couple of years of community gardening and then I finally, uh, well, I think the year after we moved here, I did a, a I think, a internship or not an internship. I can't recall what they call it uh, apprenticeship on a quarter acre. And that was my first year. I farmed with my daughter on my back sometimes. <laughs> uh, cause I, cause I was a stay at home dad then. And so I, I was farming with a quarter acre with my daughter sometimes on my back and that was my first year. But yeah, it was literally, I think uh, once when I met my wife at I she got me interested in, in farming. And so we wanted to buy land and there was no other way that I could figure out, you know, the jobs that I could get are not going to get me a mortgage on a farm. So the only way to see that dream reachable was to, to start a business out of farming and hopefully do it well and, and be successful and try to buy some land and you know i I did my planning on I did a three separate one five one ten and a fifteen year plan. I'm currently approaching the end of my five year plan and i'm I'm thinking I'm on track for uh being able to apply for a loan, having the history the numbers that the banks need uh to apply for a loan for a farm at the end of this year i'm hoping and you know if everything goes well i'm I'm hoping that uh I'll start my fifth season at a new spot.
0: So you're on leased land now. That's correct. Did you work with Minnesota Food Association with getting started, or did you just dive in on your own?
1: No, I dove in on my own. I I did I did a lot. Like I I researched them, but it was too expensive. It was like a thousand bucks for a quarter acre, and and I lived in the city, and it's like a forty five minute drive. On top of that, you can't camp there. They have all the tools. I don't know how people can make it work, man. It's just. Uh, it's, it seems like it's a very difficult thing to make work. And so I, I just took matters into my own hands. I, I found this land through uh, some nonprofit organization and got the link to the, the landowner. And I've been here four years. Um, but yeah, I, didn't, I don't, you know, the help that I have been getting is from the land stewardship project because I've been part of their uh, like farm beginnings program, the farm dreams. I did that first then farm beginnings. Now I'm in uh, the final one that the Journey Person course. Well, I'll be graduating from that the, the, uh, in the winter of 2018.
0: And so, when you started on a quarter acre your first year, you must have financed that startup yourself. You just you came in, you got the tools, and and just figured it out. Pretty much. See,
1: what happened was that I landed a job two years before I started. I I, I worked at a nonprofit that is also led by uh, Indigenous people up here in uh hugo minnesota they have a 10 acre farm their name is dream wild House. um and what happened was that i was working there i did a year in the kitchen working with youth from the farm to the kitchen we would cook meals and then the following year i started farming with them three days a week and uh that's again that's when i kind of just figured that i wanted to do things uh, or start learning more because I asked them to see if the following year I could be more of a process of where, the, not the managing process, but just learning how to plan. And I, I wasn't able to get that opportunity. I think they just needed me as labor, and I was just ready to kind of get rolling on learning more. Other than labor, I knew that it took labor to get going on a farm. You know, that, that's that's what. We- Our people do, we work hard, but, uh, so I, I, I didn't get that opportunity. So I just took it into my hands rented the land and I, uh, bought seeds. I rented a stall at a farmer's market and went at it. Yeah. Financed it myself the first year. I, you know, the, the the beginning, the first year I, it was, uh, it was an acre and a, and a third, but I lost about a, uh, half an acre of brassicas to the flea beetle because I didn't know I was supposed to cover it with row cover. Because of the flea beetle, so I lost a bunch of cra- uh, crops my first year, and uh, yeah, it was a very learning. It was a very much. I mean, it still has been every year is a learning curve. But uh,
0: so now, having grown up to three acres, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about the tools and equipment that you're using for farming.
1: Well, I mean, I I still have some of the same tools that when I started. Uh, well, I guess the first year I didn't have a rototiller, but I have a walk behind rototiller. A big brush mower that I cut uh, um, my cover crops with, and it's basically hand. You know, we do a lot of stuff by hand. This year, I'm I'm hoping to buy a little Kubota from the far or from the landowner that that I'm renting land from. He has this really nice little tractor that would suit my farm really well. I've been he gave me the keys already, and I've been practicing on it. <laughs> Uh, so I'm hoping to land that, that little thing. And if I do, you know, I've been, I've been gathering a few things through growing up. Like you said, I currently now have a better truck. Uh, I have a nice Toyota that gets me around a Tundra. Uh, I've been able to acquire a trailer that I converted into, um, uh, uh, a cooler with a cool bot that I was able to acquire through a grant. I've been able to finance a lot of the stuff that I've been doing through grants. I've been doing a lot of research. I mean, even that alone, it takes work to be able to write the story, edit it, you know, to the, to the light, to the likings of the boards that p- pick your stories, you know? so, but yeah, I, I have a few things that I've, I'm hoping that I'll get me enough. Uh, especially after buying, the, if I get this tractor, I'll be able to move somewhere and be able to start somewhere fresh.
0: Now, when you talk about financing through grants, what kinds of organizations have you have you found the grants through?
1: Well, I've only gotten two grants uh, in my four years. The first grant, I didn't do my uh, grant my first season. Obviously, I did that alone and figured it out. Uh, But the second year, a lot of the co-ops here around town have these like small grants for farmers. Uh, One of them is called Lakewinds. Organic food co-op, I believe it's Lakeland's. That's what I always call it. But, uh, I think their name is a little longer uh, But then so I I did a grant with them my my second season and I got that and then that's what I did farm The farm uh, journey person course. I got some money to do the course with for that and then uh, I skipped a season Oh, no, the following year again. And, uh, this, this time the grant, I went for a little bigger of a grant and I, I did that through, uh, the Rick Bayless foundation, the Frontera Farmer foundation out of Chicago. Right. Um, and, and I got that grant and that grant helped out a lot because, uh, with that grant, I was able to buy a lot of landscape fabric that, it's the really heavy duty stuff that lasts. Apparently, it lasts for twenty years. That's what they were saying. But that helped out my farm a lot with weeding and production. It get better yields. That also helped with the cooler. So that, that's what I mean. I think I with you know I've been able to. That was what twelve thousand, and then I think another five with Lakeland. So you know, like seventeen thousand dollars that I didn't put out of my pocket to be able to uh, hopefully. Hopefully, get me at like I said at that four at the end of that fourth year, a lot of the equipment that I'll need to kind of move on to a a space of my own because I'm kind of ready for it, man. I'm really just this lot. It's very stressful having your greenhouse in town, having your land 25 minutes out. You know, it's cloudy part of the morning. You don't want to open your greenhouse. You want to keep it nice and warm, but you leave. And it, it, all of a sudden, the clouds break, and it's 120 degrees in the greenhouse, and you lose all your peppers. Yeah, so I'm kind of ready to have everything in the same spot.
0: So, are you, you're in the process of looking for land right now? How are you going about that land search?
1: Well, just mostly doing it by myself on on you know evenings after farming that I have time to do research on the computer not much of a computer guy. I just use it because I have to, but, um, you know, I do a lot of the search through the land stewardship project. They have that that land access stuff and then, uh, land watch, you know, people that know people, I guess, but, uh, I haven't been very successful. There was a farm about two hours from here that I was really interested in, but it was just too far for what I want to do. I grew a lot of hot peppers and, you know, even going two hours North, is uh pretty much a, a, it's kind of a difference for a growing season. I I feel like if you don't have the right equipment,
0: yeah. I think about the difference between Madison, Wisconsin, and heading from here up to the Twin Cities, and I I can only imagine what two hours north would do to you.
1: Right.
0: I'm really curious, and I and I I ask this as a as a white male. Um, but when we you know when we think about farmers here in the Midwest, we don't. I don't think most people think about Latinos. They think about right. They think about white people farming because that's I mean something like ninety nine percent of of farmers yeah. at least that get counted are you know fall into that category. How has your reception been as a person of color, um, as a as a farm owner and a, and a farm operator?
1: Well, I mean, I think the most sim- simplest reason or uh, way I can answer that is that I'm on your show right now. you know i don't don't think i would have gotten that opportunity otherwise i think it's i stand out because i and that was my intention with being a farmer and being out there once i decided to kind of just get myself out there that is that that was the intention of bringing the attention of like of people to know that the people behind agriculture are actually a lot of people of color you know and you don't really see uh the farmers of color having their own farms or being managers. And I just, I wanted to express that in a way where I can hopefully reach out, reach some of my community, some of those farmers that are out there and and look at me and say, Hey, look at that Mexican dude that came from Zacatecas out of nowhere, had nothing and started with nothing. And I mean, I still have nothing, but I'm, four years later and I'm, you know, feeling pretty comfortable about where, where I am. So if I can do it, you know, I feel, feel other people could get inspired and, and do do something similar to what I'm doing.
0: Have you had negative reception in any quarters? Well, you know, there's always those trolls when
1: you publish articles and things like that, that have those negative, well, you better be a citizen if he's farming or That was like one comment I got or the other one is that like they should build a fence around my farm so that my daughter can't get out. I don't know. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've heard some stuff, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, I don't, I don't say I, I tend to focus more on positive uh, feedback from the people that I, you know, grow my food for everyone's really receptive to my, you know, going into my fourth season I still haven't had any uh anything rejected anything sent back that wasn't good yet so I take a lot of pride in what I do and so I don't let those those people those one out of like you know uh, 500 people ruin my day or get get me bothered I just you know shove it off brush it off and keep moving forward I I try not to get those uh those little uh distractions get me off my path
0: now i know just just from the background research that i did that it's important to you to be marketing into the communities of color in minneapolis and saint paul and you talked a little bit about the about the csa are are you working with stores and restaurants um that sorry I, i have a hard time asking these questions because i'm like Again, I'm the white guy here. You know, I've privileged up the yin yang. Um,
1: it's okay to feel a little uncomfortable. Saying I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just part of being human. It's all right.
0: Thank you. Um. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, so how how has it been trying to market to the Latino community in the Twin Cities? What what kind of a reception have you had had there?
1: Well, like I said, it's I said earlier, it's not a it's not a process that I would, I would say is totally finished and that I figured out how to market to to my community. No, it's, it's, it's not easy. I mean, my produce is not cheap, you know, and I, unfortunately I'm not a nonprofit and I can't, um, I can't, uh, have a sliding scale on my CSA or, or on my wholesale produce. You know, I, unfortunately labor doesn't work that way. Labor doesn't have a sliding scale, you know what I mean? And so I don't, I don't try to like take any cuts for like anyone. I mean, I feel like everyone needs to pay what it, what our work as farmers is worth, you know? And even that they should be tipping us because if we're, we're not growing their food, they don't know how to grow it.
0: They ain't going to eat,
1: you know, it should be like servers. We should be getting tips too, but that's, that's besides the point.
0: It's an important issue when, when food costs are such an issue, you know, when, when people are used to being able to get cheap food,
1: Right, and so that's why you know that's why it's difficult to to market it to the community. I mean, I've tried several stores in the Latino corridor on Lake Street in Minneapolis try to sell my stuff. You know, my tomatillos three seventy five a pound. They get their stuff at uh, I don't know ten cents a pound. They sell it at ninety nine cents a pound. So you know, when they see my prices, they're like, Nah, man, I can't I can't sell your stuff, and so. Yeah, but I don't think it's like, may not be that people can't afford to buy my stuff. I think it's just a deeper problem that people don't make enough money to eat well. You know, I think it's a combination of things, but yeah, definitely it's not easy, but I'm definitely trying and I'm not going to give up my, that's what my CSA is for, you know, um, because I was trying to be more, more of a part of the community and bring in what I love to do because for me farming is not even a job anymore it's just what i love to do and i look forward to doing it as much as possible um and so i'm always going to continue to be here as an option for when people are ready to you know make that switch to eating healthy and being okay with pain what what it really costs to, to eat healthy
0: have you done anything different with the CSA to try to reach into an underprivileged marketplace
1: Um, you know, nothing like I, I work with some organizations in the twin cities that we bring youth out. Um, there's, uh, my daughter's older school is a nonprofit. Also, they get a share and they have, they, they get a share for their, their youth program. And so, you know, slowly starting, it's not something like you said earlier, you said it yourself, you know, it's like, it's. It's the first time, at least that I know of anyone in at least in the Twin Cities, like trying to market a direct, to a direct ethnic population of people, you know, and so I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's like a one-way street where you're just going to have it figured out right away. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to run into that you know you got to figure out as you go. I mean, for example, my plan for next year is to hopefully do some advertising on the on the Latino radio stations around town, seeing if I can get more workers or if I can get more people signed up. You know, just trying to get more active on on marketing a different way.
0: You mentioned kind of indirectly competition with nonprofits, and I know that I know of at least one uh, Minnesota Food Association that's marketing produce in the Twin Cities up there. Uh, are has that been a challenge for you to be, I mean, yeah, I guess to be identifying in a similar way as being, um, you know, folk, you know, an, an immigrant farmer, a Latino farmer, a farmer of color, and to have nonprofit organizations that are also supporting that and marketing and subsidizing to some degree, the marketing of that produce.
1: I mean, I don't think so. I don't really have it you know, any conflict with that, I, I feel like, I think those programs are out there for a reason, you know, if, if, if they work for people, then that's great. Uh, unfortunately for me, I just figured it, you know, some of those programs were not the way that I wanted to go. And so, but, you know, I'm not saying anything that they don't work or nothing like that. It's just that it might not have worked for me, but it could work for other people. Uh, but as far as like the marketing. Not necessarily. I mean, to be honest with you, I've, I've been pretty, pretty, um, it's been, marketing has been really not, not easy, but like it's been relatively, uh, something that I was able to do pretty comfortable. And I think it started, I, 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 I think it really started because, um, before I knew I was farming, I was already kind of like putting myself in situations where I was going to be farming. For example, I was working at co-op. I worked at a couple co-ops in town where I was working in the produce departments. And so I got to meet buyers. I've made relationships with, with uh, the co-ops that way. And then, you know, at, at a different co-op, one of my managers was a, a chef for one of the restaurants in town. And so through him, I met other chefs. And so, marketing to to my wholesale has been really good you know and so that's why i have a little bit of flexibility to try to figure out this marketing to try to reach more uh more of a community of color in the twin cities
0: did working at the food co-ops and working in the kitchen at dream of wild health did that help inform your farming practices
1: yeah i mean i think it all had a had a, a play of how what I want to be doing. And at the end, you know, my, my goal is not to be farming the rest of my life. I'm, I'm hoping to start a farm to table, uh, Mexican restaurant. Uh, I don't think there's one in the Midwest where they're, you know, having the is out there, but I don't think, uh, there's many, many Mexican restaurants that are using local fresh ingredients. Um, and so that's my end goal in my 15 year plan is to be able to, have that restaurant, uh, but then, you know, having the farm as well. And yeah, that's kind of like the dream, be able to farm and cook my food, be able to jump back and forth if I need to. I, You know, I'd give myself till, till 50, 55 to work hard. You know, that's uh, at least 50. I feel like I'd be pretty good to about 50. But by 50, I definitely want to have it set up where I can not be farming all the time and be focusing on other things.
0: That I think that's smart. Um, I know that, that for me, the the difference between farming at 25 and farming at, at even 35, but certainly at, when I was closing in on 45 was, was a lot different.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm 35 right now. Yeah, I started when I was, uh, you know, four years ago. So 31, I, when I started, I gave myself that timeline. I was that 50 is, is the max. So you got to figure out by that time to have a, you know, you got to figure out before then the, the retirement plan, but hopefully having that restaurant by the age of 50 and, you know, being able to step away from farming and just kind of stepping into a role of kind of managing, not managing, but just, just being in the background, you know, making sure,
0: they're, making sure things work. How many employees do you have on the farm?
1: Let's see. I have two people that come part-time three days a week, and then I have one person that comes full-time with myself full-time. And then I have three worker shares that come for a day uh, once a week. And then they come on like Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And so I have people here pretty much. The only day that I don't have help quite enough yet is on Fridays, but I think we'll be getting another person that'll be helping a a little bit more because i I'm gonna be stepping away to uh, the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture for this fellowship coming up in July. A little worried about it, but I think it'll it'll, it'll work out.
0: Tell me about the Food and Farm Fellowship.
1: So after after I came out on the New York Times video, um, they some of the people from that organization reached out and I got invited to a conference that they have, the National Young Farmers Conference. And so I went to that and it was really uh cool experience. It was, uh, I met a lot of cool people. And so because of that, I got connected to, to them. And so they're having a a, a fellowship this year with 15, uh, uh, 14, I guess I'm the 15th, 14 other people that are going to be coming together for three weeks, talking about, uh, brainstorming, I guess, about creating, uh, uh. Uh, creating an, an alternative model to the current food system that we have in in place right now so it's a combination of farmers lawyers doctors distributors produce buyers uh, a range of people from across the country that'll be you know like i said together uh for fifth, uh, three weeks brainstorming it sounds really fun
0: and you said that's coming up in august
1: actually in july
0: who okay and what are you doing to get ready for that i mean because from a management standpoint stepping away from the farm for three weeks is i mean a couple of days is one thing one week's another but three weeks is a long time to be gone
1: yeah i thought about that but uh i don't know i feel pretty confident confident the two the people that uh are working with me work the last two years with me. So they, they know pretty much how I, I run, how I, we do the things around here. And so I'm leaving two people in charge, uh, one people, one person in charge of the CSA and then the other person of the wholesale and the deliveries. And so I'll be connected every day with them through my laptop because, uh, so some of the things that I do through the CSA too is that I barter. So I don't sell all my shares. Some of the shares I barter. And so I barter a share with a guy um that does that he writes code. And so he was able to put together a website for me that um I'm always like connected to that I know what the orders are and people can print out their receipts. I literally it's it's made my life easy uh by I mean, I can't even describe how much, um, and so that's in place. And so I feel pretty comfortable being connected with them. They know, you know, when we do the successions of things, I've left, you know, I've pretty much have uh, a calendar with every everything, everything that needs to go on the ground. When, you know, we have mock-up harvest lists of the CSA, we more more or less already know when our peppers are going to come through because that's what we grow. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like I've been, you know, trying to put everything in place to, to make it easy for them to figure, you know, to, to do what we do on a daily basis without me being here.
0: That's awesome. Just really putting in the advanced planning work, I think is a lot of what that's all about.
1: And it, the, the important thing is the, the website, the, cause it's my, my invoicing, system is connected to my website and so people just log on to my website they have a, a username uh a password when they log in it auto populates what they order um you know the thing that i'll be connecting with with my my guys here is the, like what they're thinking of availability we do everything on 250 foot beds so we know that we can get you know uh 15 cases of cilantro for bed you know so there's a lot of things that are already in place to be able to help uh, them send out information to me so that i can uh, update our availability through the website where mm-hmm. they just go in there like i said log in order their stuff print their invoice then that system emails me a list of the harvesting list and then what i do is just i just forward it to my guy to his personal email he just uh, prints the, the harvest list for the day and the gal is in charge for the CSA list and they get that harvest so I think I, I feel pretty comfortable and you know one of the things as a farmer I don't, I don't think uh, you'd be able to function if you don't uh, believe on achieving what you what you set out to to do you know you got to have faith you got to trust and uh, what's that word I can't I can't remember a word but they're there's a saying for that too. I, I, when it comes back to me, I'll, I'll remember. Days, okay. So.
0: <laughs> All right. Tell me a little bit about operating on on rented land as you've scaled up. What are you doing for infrastructure? You mentioned that you've got a cooler that's that's part of a trailer that you use for deliveries. Is do you have an additional packing facility besides that?
1: No, I wish there's no no infrastructure here. Uh, that's why I had to get the cool bot trailer. The only thing that was here when I got here was water. a well, my first year I had to water my plants in the middle of July when it was like 90 degrees with five gallon buckets. The second year I was like, screw that. So everything that I made the first year, I put it into uh, my irrigation system. And so, uh, but no, I have no infrastructure. I have no greenhouse. I have no infrastructure, no shed. I mean, I built a shed out of uh, pallets. I think I spent about 100 bucks on other late, uh, lumber and, and uh, hardware to put this uh, pallet shed together for all my tools. I bought a big old canvas tarp, the ones that you buy or uh, that are on billboards. And that's what I use for the roof. I covered it with plywood, sealed that, and I, it was a long extension, so I extended it long enough to fit my walk behind mower and my uh, my brush uh, yeah my br- brush mower and my tiller. So I, I yeah literally have like no infrastructure out here, and that's why I was saying to you earlier. I'm just kind of ready to have everything in one place part of their organization where I worked previous years, uh, Dream of Wild Health they'll still allow me to have like maybe one greenhouse table in their greenhouse, and so I have plants in Hugo, Minnesota. I got plants I had plants at one of my employees' house in Minneapolis, <laughs> plants at my house for like two weeks the greenhouse in St. Paul plants out here, the, the cooler, uh, the, the cooler that I finally, uh, the cool, that I just used to store my produce while I'm harvesting. I leave it up here, but my final storage is in St. Paul as well at the good acre. So it's everywhere, man. It's a mess. And, uh, I don't know how I keep my shoulder or my head on my shoulders.
0: I think you've got to be a good manager to pull that off.
1: <laughs> I, I, I try. I think I still have a lot to learn.
0: Tell me about doing storage at, at the Good Acre. I, I know that Good Acres, I'm, I've got a little bit of familiarity with it, but I know it's something that most of my listeners wouldn't recognize, that name.
1: Uh, so the Goodacre is a big organization that's funded uh, by the Pullads, I believe. And they're a pretty wealthy family in the Twin Cities. And uh, so they put this facility together. I mean, it's humongous. It's so nice but they have coolers, they have a kitchen, they have like processing, uh, a facility, a washing station. Um, so it's a really, it's like a hub where a lot of farmers, they also run a CSA with us farmers. So I'm, I'm one of their farmers for their CSAs, And, and so I sell them a lot of hot peppers and other things, radishes and things like that. But, uh, Yeah, so through them, because it's a kind of a hub, I rent uh, about a a pallet-sized space of cooler at their spot where I do the final, you know, before I do my delivery the night before. Uh, So it's a cool organization. I haven't utilized the kitchen as much as I would like. Like I said, that is part of my my plan at some point, but um, maybe uh, stepping away for these three weeks, Depending on how this this works out, I'll figure out how to step away a little bit more uh, to try to you know get get the other side of things going. But land first, gotta buy land first.
0: How much do you pay for that pallets worth of space at the essentially at what's essentially a food hub there?
1: Right, right. That that I don't know. I think uh, because other farmers, uh, I don't know. I don't think that could be disclosed. Fair <laughs> enough. I think, uh, I, I think I have a special relationship, uh, with them because, uh, I was part of their startup process. And I think, uh, and I also think that they might do a sliding scale. I don't know if they do, but I think depending on where you are on your farming experiences and your infrastructure and things like that, I think that's how they charge, um, uh, it's not much for me. I tell you that much. I, uh, it's very affordable. I know that if I was trying to do that somewhere else, it'd be insanely expensive. And so I'm very grateful for, for uh, you know, being a startup, uh, being being a part of the initial startup and having that space uh, accessible to me at the price that, that I pay is uh, is very nice.
0: And you mentioned that after your first year farming you plowed all of your capital back into an irrigation system. Can you tell us about the irrigation system there at San Fronteras?
1: Yeah, so I mean the irrigation system is uh it's a little crazy. I still I still try to figure it out, but uh so the pump, the guy that was here before or that's his land, his pump is humongous. It goes it, I think it does uh a hundred gallons a minute and it's just too big for what we, we were trying to do. And so what I had to do is, uh, I had to buy a separate, yeah, uh, separate tank that I could pump the water from the big pump into the tank. And then I bought a smaller pump to pump from the tank out to the field. And so I basically just, uh, there's a, you probably know this website, but that website drip works. Yeah. It helps a lot to, to lay out, uh, you know, how well, I more or less got ideas from that website and I kind of figured out to to do my stuff in sections and sections that my pump would be able to pump water without having a, a, a pressure regulator. So I don't have any pressure regular. My pump runs, uh, it, it has enough pressure to reach my fields everywhere right now. I, even currently, I open some new land further away from the pump and it's still... It, it still does really well. I'm, I'm currently setting it up. It's a new area, so I'm waiting for a couple couplings to come in from NOLT, uh to be able to finalize it. But I do a combination of drip and uh, and uh, wobblers. So I can run drip and wobblers at the same time. If I have a section where they're exceeded, I'll run my wobblers through there. And then on my carrots, I'll put, you know, if they need water. They, you know, and that's the thing. I have it set up because I learned my lesson. About farming and how much you need water, uh, it, so I put a lot. You know, about half of the what I made, I made a ha- uh, uh, half of what I made. I put back into the irrigation system. But I, 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 re- I've, what I've been trying to do is with my farming practices is basically farm the way my grandfather did, and he didn't have any kind of fancy irrigation system. And so I, I try to farm with the rain cycles. You know, and I have. I have the the irrigation system as a backup just in case it goes like this weekend. I mean, it, it, we went from like swimming in our fields, not being able to get in to plant and do what we got to do, to like now it's been dry and this weekend's going to be like ninety degrees. So now I that's why I'm waiting for those couplings because my plants are definitely going to need water by the end of the weekend. So that's probably how I'm going to be spending my weekend is uh, watering the fields this weekend.
0: With that, I'd like to stop here and take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Eduardo Rivera from Sin Fronteras Farm and Food, west of Stillwater, Minnesota. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you buy potting mix from Vermont Compost Company, you're not just buying an input, you're joining a community of growers across the United States. And like the best inputs and the best communities, You're getting a product and a community that really have your back. Vermont Compost keeps track of who gets every batch of potting soil they create. And because Vermont Compost deals directly with growers without growing through a distributor, they know who's using their potting soils and how they're using them. Vermont Compost knows, like I do, that organic growers are some of the best people on the planet. And they're proud to be a part of that community, just like I am. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. Perennial support is also provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I've worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I'm not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors, with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and much, much more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Eduardo Rivera from Sin Fronteras Farm and Food, uh, west of Stillwater, Minnesota. And Eduardo, we were talking just a little bit about irrigation before we went on break. And, you know, you said earlier that you specialize in some crops like cilantro and and hot peppers. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of dig into some of your production techniques and what what you're doing to make those crops work especially well for you. And so... Can you walk us through what cilantro production looks like at Sin Fronteras?
1: I mean, it's a very simple, easy process. I mean, we direct seed into our beds early spring. Our beds are four feet wide. And so we fit, you know, let's see, about one, two, three, four, five rows of cilantro, more or less. I've seeded I really thickly, really thick. Uh, so that it's like really dense and, uh, you can get a bunch in about, you get a good bunch in about half a foot, you know, you get two good bunches out of a foot. Yeah. And then we just try to, you know, we do, we let it go. We do, uh, we leave enough space in between to do, to do the wheel hole. We run the wheel hole a few times before, you know, when it, once it comes up, so knock the weeds down once it gets going. We let it be, so it gets to a nice size. Then once it gets to a nice size, the week before harvest, we do a good weeding by hand uh, to clean out all the weeds that are right next to the the row, because everything else the wheel hole gets. Uh, and then yeah, we try to get about two bunches per box. You know, and the way we market is that I don't know. I mean, I'm not dissing on cilantro from, I guess I am a little bit, but from California. But I mean, when you look at that stuff, it looks horrible. And so I feel like I take enough time to do a really good bunch to where people don't mind paying what we charge. You know, I think, I think I charge about 15 more dollars per normal case of cilantro 30 count. I think you could get it probably anywhere from 25 to 30 bucks, mine's 45 bucks, you know? And so we, yeah, I take, I take pride on, uh, we harvest that cilantro and a lot of the chefs like that they can get a bunch from my farm and literally use it from from leaf to stem
0: so you talk about about doing really nice bunches with the cilantro what what goes into to making a really nice bunch what's your what's your harvest process and and what's your definition of a really nice bunch
1: well the definition for me as of a nice bunch is that uh, you can use a bunch from leaf to end to the end of the t- the the growing tubes or the stems. Uh, if you, I don't know. I mean, I well, I don't like to leave any growth in the cilantro in the stem, so I brush that out. So I I bunch my stem in my hand, but then I grab it a little higher without damaging leaves. and then I brush the 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 stem portions, and all these little clippings fall off. And some of them, some of us keep it. Some of it just goes back on the ground, but my stems are really clean. There's no growth, small growth. Cause that's, that's where I found that the problem was with cilantro is that when you bunch it, there's a bunch of growth. That's like sometimes weeds and cilantro. That's the small growth. And that's the stuff that tends to go rotten faster. Is the stuff around the the rubber bands, which is the stuff that is all bunched up and that goes bad fast. And so if you clean all that stuff out, and all you have is stem in the rubber band then your stems can last in the cooler up to a week I, even longer i've had my stuff in coolers longer and i've i've done comparison where you have a bunch of, where it has a bunch of growth and weeds and stuff in the rubber band and that stuff got starts going black before my my uh my bunches do so i yeah, it's kind of. We take it a bit, a bit extra more time to clean the, those stems so that there's no growth, and then that way you don't have a problem where you you open the box. You the first couple bunches are nice, but then you stop go, You start going further in, and you start noticing all the black around the the rubber bands. And that, to me, I think that's why I take that other little time to clean it up really well, so it's just stem and rubber band, and that just keeps it really fresh
0: are you harvesting each patch of cilantro multiple times or is it just going through the once?
1: No, we, we do two cuttings per, per, uh, per bed. So we cut it. I let it grow to a size where the second growth is still down there. And so we take most of the stem and the first growth and we chop it. And then that leaves the stems of the first growth. Cause I see it. Like I said, I seed it really, really thick. And so there's stuff that germinates and then there's stuff still germinating when stuff's already germinated. And so the second cutting is that other, like the rest of that seed that gets seeded in there. I do set like a one, I use the the earthway seeder, but I use the the plate for beets. You know how big that is? I don't know if you're familiar with. So I use that to seed it, but I, instead of like doing it, I cover, I think I cover like every other hole, and that tends to seed it really nice and thick band, and and uh, it seeds it also like at a good. Uh, so you don't have too many spaces in between where you don't have nothing. Basically, it's like a really good solid band the whole way down, and so like I said, I do the first cutting, and then probably that second cutting will happen a week later. So if I cut it on a Monday, I'll probably cut that same area the following Monday, and I'll cut a different row you know, on, on Thursday. And then that, that Thursday area will get cut this following week on, on the following Thursday.
0: So we get two cuts. And then what's your post-harvest handling process?
1: Um, We put it in, if it's really hot, we put it in, in cold water in, in the back of the pickup. We bring buckets with cold water. uh, And then we, Yeah. So we harvest it and we put it in there and we, we know we, we harvest the box at the time. And so once we do that, we bring it into the wash tubs and our tubs have, you know, some Omri approved uh, stuff that we use when we use to clean leafy stuff. And so, yeah, that's, that's about the process. Awesome. We make sure that the buckets are sanitized before we start harvesting and, you know, you know, that, that's just something to get me going through the spring. I guess people, I really I haven't really like labeled myself as growing as specializing in anything really. Cause I grow so many things, but, uh, some of the people that I work with, this guy that I sell peppers to that makes sausages for one of the stores that I sell produce to, uh, One of the stores has their own meat department and that guy I've been working with for a while. And so he's like, we in town, we have this guy named our, uh, his business name is the tomato king because he does tomatoes really early. I think they're hydroponic or something like that. And so they're like the first tomatoes that come out in the season and they're the tomato kings. And so I grew a lot of peppers. I just like growing spicy, man. I, my state, I believe is like the, yeah, the uh, pepper capital of Mexico where we grow a lot of peppers and so it was just something that I really loved about and just it kind of reconnected me to being back home and so growing lots of different peppers. He was like, You're the you're the pepper, you you're the pepper king dude and I was like, No I'm not but he's like, You you're specializing in pepper. So it just kinda of stuck that way. And so yeah, my number one seller is Jalapeño. Uh when I first started I did a lot of research though and it turned out that in Minnesota the average uh that were being eaten was uh, jalapeno poblano serrano which are the most common ones and so i just started growing those and marketing those and yeah those are the ones that i sell but i also grow some special varieties that you can't get that some of the chefs really like some of them are kind of trendy now like the shishito and the padrons Uh, but i i started with those like a few years back and the chefs really like them and so I grow some of those special varieties this year. I took a trip to uh, Puerto Rico and I brought back some seed. I don't know if I should be saying that, but uh, anyways, some peppers from down there called aji dulce. So now I'll be able to put a recipe in my uh, newsletter of how to make uh, a special sauce that they make in Puerto Rico. So you know I grow different varieties of those special peppers that people like.
0: Now, Minnesota is a, as we've talked, I mean, it's not exactly warm uh, in Minnesota for most of the year. The seasons can be fairly short. Um, what are you, how are you actually going about producing those peppers?
1: So we start in the greenhouse that I, you know, every year is a, t- is a hustle to try to find greenhouse space, but we find greenhouse space. We start in the greenhouse. Uh, and what I've been doing after I got that grant from the farmer, uh, farmer foundation from rick bayless is that i put them into that uh, landscape fabric and then i cover them with um with a slitted plastic real plastic and so that helps them a lot to get going that helps that gives them a jump so uh, you know i end up planting peppers by the end of mid you know the 20th of may eighteenth, sixteenth, somewhere around there and some of the peppers under that stuff do really well that we have peppers by like the first week in july
0: wow you're taking that plastic off once the peppers start to blossom is that right well they're slitted
1: and it has ventilation bugs get in bugs are always uh pollinating so they don't come out for a little while into they get pollinated in there once we start seeing pods then we start you know uncovering it up but they stay in there it's, it still cools off at night, you know, and in the in the morning that that plastic is slitted, so there's a lot of wind ventilation where it's not gonna be I mean, I, like I was saying earlier, I I lost pepper I thought I lost peppers earlier in the in a couple of weeks ago in that greenhouse. So that's what happened to me. I was out in the fields and we over it was overcasted in the morning so I left it closed. By like two o'clock it was just like super scorching hot. I fricking excessively sped down to town trying not to get a ticket or arrested. And once I got there the, the temperature reading was hundred and twenty when I got there. My Serrano uh. plants were all looked dead. I took a picture of it in, and two weeks later now I took another picture to put it on Facebook but they're like back alive. So I don't know man, plants plants are so resilient. We we are I think we as humans are more vulnerable and weaker than plants are. I don't think I could have survived a day at 120 degrees and come back from that, you know? (laughs) So plants, plants teach me a lot. Plants teach me so much every year, man. Every year I have doubts, you know, about something not working out. And man, these plants are just like, they talk to you. They, they, they really do talk to you. If you listen, you know, they, they're just super, super strong. They just know what they're doing. You know?
0: Do you talk to the plants too? From the time, you
1: know, when it's coming to be blossom season, I I tend to encourage them to say like, "Come on, yo, start start putting out." I need those peppers to be selling.
0: Now, <laughs> yeah, do you prune off? But yeah, I do. Okay, good. Do you prune off early blossoms?
1: I uh, no, I don't.
0: So just just as That's soon as you can the get them going,
1: yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just let my peppers go. Whenever they're ready, they just start setting setting uh, peppers, you know? That's a lot. I, I plant so much peppers, it start, like, if I'm going to take time to do that, I think I'd rather take time to do that and go pick up the potato beetles, man. Those are crazy. Peppers are still going to come. That potato takes over, or the potato beetle takes over your field, and you're just screwed. Yeah.
0: So, um, are you trellising the peppers?
1: No, they they don't get trellis. They just get planted. We lay out the so we lay out drip irrigation first under the matting. Like I said, it's like my safety plan, just in case. My JIC plan, I call it, just in case. Um, so I lay out the drip, and then I lay out my fabric. And if it's brand new, you know I I have to be precise on how I lay my drips so I don't burn my my holes with a torch <laughs> as I'm burning the holes for. So we got to be precise, you know. And so we we burn holes and we plant straight into that. And they're spaced about a foot apart. They love the the little low tunnels. The heat at night that keeps the warmth at night. They tend to like you know seventy to eighty degrees if they can get it all, average. But uh. So I, I I don't know. I I think that works.
0: That's awesome. And for, for harvest, you know, with a, with something like a jalapeno, how do you decide when those are ready to pick?
1: Basically, see, that's one thing I do do. When, when we start having uh, like first little pods, I tend to pick up, pick off the one because plants will pop one off. So I I don't pick off the, the pod, but I do pick off the pepper once it gets the pod comes out and that encourages more of the blossoms to come out. Um, and so we go through and we pick off the little, the little pods that come out. And then, uh, once they get going, you know, those blossoms get going. I, once there's enough on a plant and, uh, I look for them, you, you know, this probably because you've grown peppers, but before they get to a, a process or the process of being ready, they kind of have like this waxy look to them. Yep. And then when, when they get ready to be harvested, they have a shiny coat to them. And so I look for that and, uh, and as well as like the feel, the, the, when they're not ready, when they're that waxy look to them, you feel them and they're kind of squishy. They kind of feel squishy. But then when you feel them, when they're glossy looking, they tend to be more hard. And so once they get that nice, I squeeze them a little bit and they kind of crunch in your hand a little bit. That's when I know they're ready.
0: And how often are you picking the peppers? Are you cycling through once a week, twice a week? So we're
1: harvesting twice a week uh, peppers. That, uh, yeah, so twice a week we're harvesting. And, you know, we, yeah, we do about, we probably average about 200 pounds a week of jalapeno last less, less year, once they got going. Okay.
0: That's a lot of jalapenos, especially for Minnesota.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Surly—one of the restaurants that I work with, Surly Brewing Company—you know, they they pickle a lot of them, and so they go they go through at least fifty pounds, if not more, a week.
0: Wow, that's awesome, and and how lucky you are to be working with Surly. That's not a bad choice of customer, right there.
1: No, that was, that was like I said, that was a connection from my my previous manager. He was a chef at a restaurant, but he knew the chef at Surly, so he got me connected with him. He ends up being from Mexico, the chef from Surly. Uh, And so, you know, he liked that I was growing all kinds of peppers. And so my tios, it kind of just went right up his alley too. So those the kind of connections that I, you know, try to make is that I try to find the chefs that buy the stuff that I'm already growing. And, you know, once we get that rolling, they ask me, you know, like a chef this year asked me for holy basil. So I'm growing some holy basil for him this year. And, you know, he asked me for some beets, some growing beets, things that I would normally not wholesale. But it, they got to be able to buy my other stuff first, otherwise I can't. You know, I ask for a hundred dollar minimum per order per you know twice a week, and I ask. Uh, I've kind of, I've already, I've kind of been pushing my customers to try to hit about a ten thousand dollar mark with me of my produce that I I sell to them a, a season because I. I think once I get to about 10000 10, per customer, I'll be able to uh, pay people 15 bucks, have a mortgage, and uh, you know, be able to live okay. I'm not in farming to get rich. You know, I just want to buy land and hopefully have my farm be a destination place with a restaurant. That's about it. It's not too much to ask for or
0: to try to go for. And to be able to pay people fairly is a big deal.
1: Yeah, that's important to me, man. I mean, last year I paid $8 an hour just because I didn't have the cash flow to be able to do more, but, uh, my last year went pretty well. And so my guys that I started this year, I went up to 10 bucks an hour, you know, still not perfect. I don't get paid more than they do. I pay myself the same. Um, I just happen to work more hours than they do because all the stuff that I do out of the fields as well. But, uh, you know, I pay everybody the same as I get paid. If I go up to $12 an hour for myself all my crew, depending on who stays, you know, but I feel like $12 an hour, anyone that wants to come out and farm and is willing to learn is, is worth it, you know. I mean, 15 would be good, but can't do that yet.
0: And especially for those folks that come back that second year when it really is <laughs> skilled labor at that point, you know, people that really do know what they're doing.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, those two guys, like I said, came back. Uh, from eight. I paid them up to 10. I, the other gal I got this year as well, I started her at 10. Um, so, you know, we're currently, we posted something on our Facebook wall to try to hire somebody for the month of July that I'm going to be gone. Basically just trying to, you know, like I said, I have things in place to be able to get it done. I just want to leave an extra pair of hands, my hands that would be missing, uh, to help them harvest and, you know, do the various tasks at the farm. But, uh, that's how it goes
0: is your wife involved in the farming operation
1: no she has a full-time job uh she's not really a farmer but i mean she's involved you know she helps me with the newsletter she helps me i write the grants but she's more of the you know she's the one that went to school so she edits them and and uh she does a lot of stuff for me but she's not in the fields i don't know if that would be a a good idea, you know what I mean? It's like we already are at home all the time, and we'd be working together. we'd probably try to <laughs> hit each other with some hose or something,
0: <laughs> not allowed to do that
1: right, so better keep it keep it that way better
0: <laughs> now you've talked several times as we've been as we've been going on today about your business planning process and and goals and markers that you wanted to make and and an example would be you know, just now you talked about wanting to get to $10,000 per say of sales per year per cu- per wholesale customer. And that that would, that would set you up where you needed to be to be able to pay a mortgage and to be able to pay people a decent wage. Um, Can you talk to me about how you went about that business planning process?
1: Yeah. The land stewardship project, <coughs> excuse me, has a, has a, a farming program. It's a nonprofit here in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and they have a farming uh, program called the Farm Beginnings. Uh, But they, previous to that program, they have the entry level course called uh, Farm Dreams. So that's kind of where you start to plant your seed. If you want to become a farmer or not, you get to all the crazy things that you have to deal with. And that's where you, I think where people or where, you know, what people would get discouraged and maybe farming is not for me. Uh, but then they have the Farm Beginnings Program. And in that one, they work, uh, their approach is a holistic approach, a holistic management approach. And so through that model, I was just able to kind of figure out exactly, you know, and it's not set in stone yet. But it was just, it gave me a track to be able to figure out, to put goals into place. And, the, and then on top of that, to do active things to get me to to those goals, so that program helped a lot.
0: And is that something? That I assume you have all of that written down. This is a this is an actual document that you were able to refer to over time.
1: Yeah, there's like I said, three sections to it. The first section was trying to buy land in five years. <laughs> the other section of that is paying off some of the land and like starting doing the same thing that I did with the with farming, like acquiring things that'll get me to the next point of my next, uh, part of the plan.
0: I think it's really great. I think one of the real values of going through a program like the farm beginnings classes are that they give you a foundation and, and help you help guide you through doing some of that work. That's not always really clear how you go about coming up with a business plan.
1: I mean, I take a little bit from everything. I mean, I even, I would even say, even going to your workshops, is, it helped me a lot at Moses to do some record keeping and trying to be more clean on the desk. <laughs> everything helps, you know, you pick up a little bit from everyone that's already done something. And so, why not put it into what you do? And it all of a sudden starts evolve, evolving into this thing, you know, and keep learning from that.
0: You mentioned earlier learning to farm from your grandpa. And you talked about, yep. you know, learning especially about water and water conservation. What else do you feel like you've brought to your farm that maybe somebody that grew up in the city here in the United States wouldn't have brought to their farm?
1: That's a tough one. I don't know. I mean, um, I think, I I think one thing that I can think of is um, I just remember how my grandfather didn't rely on on any anything else besides mother earth and i feel like that's one of the things that here i think we get used to like being able to go out and just buy any implement for a tractor or like being able to get drip or you know those kinds of things and i think uh that having that approach to being able to like believe in the, in and how people used to farm without those kinds of systems that are currently in place i think that's what i I probably bring different to to farming. That's the best thing I can think of right now.
0: With that, Eduardo, I think it's time to turn to our lightning round. We're going to get a word from one more sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Sounds good. This lightning round is brought to you by you, the listeners of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And the nice thing about that is I probably don't need to go on and on, and on about it, because the fact you're here probably means that you already think the Farmer to Farmer podcast is kind of cool. If you value the show, please consider heading over to farmertofarmerpodcast.com/slash/donate to have a look at our options for directly supporting the Farmer to Farmer Podcast. Your direct support helps make this show available to a wide variety of farmers, farm workers, and farmers to be across the country and the globe. I would especially encourage you to check out the option to support the Farmer to Farmer Podcast through Patreon, which provides a way to make a monthly contribution to the show. Five dollars a month comes out to just over a buck a show. And that makes a big difference keeping the tractor running over here. That's farmer to farmer slash donate. And thank you. Eduardo, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, The wheel hoe. And what kind of wheel hoe do you have? I have, uh, gosh, Oak Valley. Okay. That Valley Oak. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice one. Uh, Valley Oak. Yes. Yes. What's your favorite crop to grow? Peppers that seems like an e- kind of a no-brainer right there yeah <laughs> what's been your favorite resource for learning how to grow these hot weather crops in Minnesota where do you turn when you need information
1: i don't think i have like a place where i turn for information for hot weather crops but i do reference uh when i first started farming i based my first year of production based on the john javen's uh, book, uh, grow food or grow more food, what's it called? uh, How to grow more. I think it's something something like how to grow more
0: vegetables in less than you can imagine in less space than you ever thought possible or something like that.
1: That was, uh, that was one of the first books my wife gave me. And, uh, yeah, from there I planned my first season. And so time to time I, I tend to reference like spacing and, you know, I feel like it has a lot of information. It's very useful.
0: Love that. That was actually one of my one of my three base books when I started farming at New Springs College. So I'm right there with you on that one. What's your farming superpower? Farming
1: superpower. I don't know. I tend to I tend to just make things work. I don't know. I have that like I can build things. I, I, I don't know how to weld yet or not an electrician, but anything beyond that. You know, I could pretty much figure out, I feel like I can make things work with very little. I've been able to figure out, I mean, I started with nothing when I first started, you know, no irrigation. Like I mentioned, I watered with five gallon buckets my first year. So I just feel like I'm able to figure out when, when we, when I come to problems, like I, I find solutions.
0: That's a great superpower to have. Finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Um, probably get a little bit more experience before uh before just jumping full on. I think that the one thing I, I would tell myself is, uh, yeah, like find your markets first, do all the research first, and then uh and then throw your seeds in the ground.
0: Awesome. Eduardo, thank you so much for being part of the farmer-to- Farmer podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure
0: and I uh, look forward to, uh, to hearing it. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 125 of the farmer to farmer podcast, you can find the notes for the show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Rivera. That's R I V E R A. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by earth tools, offering the most complete selection of walk behind farming equipment and high quality garden tools in North America and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review if you enjoy the show. Talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to com slash donate like we talked about after the lightning round. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at com. Eduardo was on the show today because of recommendations that I received through that form. I'll do my best to get them on the show if you recommend them. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.